question. There was the truth right in front of Pilate. He said, what is truth? Jesus should have just said, I am. But he'd already said that. He'd already demonstrated. He'd already told it. And that is the example of what happens in our culture when Christians proclaim Christ. They say, who knows what's true? This is the truth. Now, as we think about this, this worldview, we want to summarize it, first of all, by saying, although postmodernism says there can be no metaphysics, no meta-narrative, no grand story that explains everything, Christians are those who say, yes, there is. It is the truth of Christ. It is this doctrine that flows into the reality of who we are. Now, if you look on the back of the page that I gave you yesterday, I had... Three questions, and these are the ones that lead us into our discussion tonight. What is reality? What is real? The Christian says the transcendent reality of the world is, in fact, the Christian truth that we proclaim in Jesus. Do you remember the six words we taught yesterday? Our foundational belief is that there is a transcendent God. Can I talk with big words? The self-contained ontological triune God the one who exists by his own being. The ground of his being is himself. It is his aseity. He is the God who is the I am that I am. He does not change. He has the immutable attributes of infinite, eternal, and unchangeability. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He can declare the end from the beginning. This is our God. This is where we start. It is our unprovable assumption. We don't try to prove it any more than Moses did in the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God. It is God who enters into the world and says, I'm true and every man is a liar. Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar who stands before him. Now, that's not a popular view, is it? Any more than Pilate. When he heard Jesus, I've come to proclaim the truth, he said, what's truth? Well, we're saying this is the truth, God This God has, in fact, given us the ability to speak of him because he's revealed what is reality. Revelation is another critical word. We would not know God unless God revealed himself. We would not know what God has spoken unless God had given it to us. This is the scriptures. We say that revelation comes in the following ways. Through nature, the heavens declare the glory of God. We call that natural revelation. We speak of special revelation, where God actually communicates His Word directly into history. He gives us, if you will, the words of the prophets, the words of the apostles that are inscripturated so that we have the inspired, inerrant, absolutely true recorded Word of God, the canon of Scripture. But we also have, in a very special way, the living Word. Christ is eternal God become man. We speak of that as the incarnate revelation. God took flesh and he dwelled among us, full of grace, full of truth. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. This is what we read in John 1, Revelation. This revelation then explains the reality of time. Time for the Christian is not an endless cycle that continues to repeat itself, that has no course or meaning, a meaningless circle. That's the way the world looks at things. It's cyclical. It never ends. It just repeats itself. Or it's mysteriously unending, and therefore it cannot be interpreted. We say, no, it has a beginning and an end, and it has a process which is being worked out in history. We say it first with creation. God exists, and He's entirely distinct from His creation. He is the Creator. We are creatures. There is a foundational difference in his being and our being. His ontology is not our ontology, if you want to speak as a philosopher. He is eternal. We are temporal. He doesn't change. We change. He is the one who knows all things. We have to learn and we forget what we know. God is distinct from his creation. This creation is not perfect anymore. Why? Because of sin. We said the fall has entered into the world. Man has fallen. The covenant that was established with man is broken. Man has rebelled against God as his Lord. But God in his infinite goodness and mercy has not left the world to its final demise. 
But he has again continued to reveal himself. And we said, this is the cross. And we use the word to describe the cross of redemption. The word redemption is found in the Greek Bible, and it is exactly the same word that was known in that era of buying a slave off of an auction block. Ex agorazo is the Greek word. The agora, the marketplace. Out of the agora, the price was paid for manumission of a slave. He becomes free. That's the image of what the cross did. The cross comes and finds people who were enslaved in sin who could not break that bondage. The chains are broken. They are delivered by the price that he paid. What is the price? Himself. The perfect Lamb of God. He was the high priest and the sacrifice. He did not have his life taken from him. He laid it down and he takes it back. His redemption is complete by resurrection. This resurrection then is what gives us the last point which we called our hope. So as the Christian looks at history, he sees that it has a beginning and it has a telos, a goal to which it ends. It's the ultimate hope when Christ's resurrection creates the new heavens and the new earth. It is when every tear is dried from the eye, when sorrow and pain flee away, when all things are made new, when there is no longer darkness because the Lamb is the light of that city. This is the hope that we have. This is our worldview. Would you ask me to prove that? I can't prove it except God has said it's so. You say, I can't accept it. You didn't prove it. Well, what other ground am I giving but what every other system does? It begins with its faith. You said, wait, you're the person of faith. You're a Christian. We said, no, everybody is a person of faith. Finite creatures who have a beginning and an end who do not know all things are forced to make assumptions about life that we cannot prove. You want to know an example of that? Get in your car and start driving home tonight. Okay, what's that siren for? Someone may be just hit in an accident. How many? Seven times did you say or once? Seven times it's a fire because one time it's an ambulance. Okay, let's see if there's another one coming. I'm counting on you to... You're revealing this to me now. Okay, all right, no fire here. But what that means is somebody may have been driving along in his car believing everything was fine, believing that the man on the other side was going to stay on his side of the road. But he was not going to because he was intoxicated. And he swerved as he fell asleep. And there's just been a head-on collision. And the person totally believed he was safe. And now there's an ambulance going to pick him up and take him to the hospital. That's faith. And you exercise it whether you're an atheist or a Christian every day. When you go, listen, let me tell you, the greatest faith I can imagine is when you take that piece of paper that has the scribbling from your doctor on it and you go to a pharmacist and say, give me this stuff, I'm going to take it. You don't know what's in it and if the guy can even read it. And you swallow the stuff whole. You talk about faith, that's faith. That could be taking you right to eternity rather than, for all I know, okay? You're, go to heaven by going to your doctor who can't write. He failed penmanship. Okay? Faith, we live with faith all the time. And so when the atheist, the materialist, the humanist says there is no God, he is declaring an act of faith as much as when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I declare what I believe. He's declaring what he believes. He's lying to you when he says, this is what science proves. It's not science. This is an autonomous self-contained individual trying to make his world meaningful when he doesn't have any other basis for it than his own intellect, which is finite. He says, I'm a scientist. How many times has science changed in your lifetime? Is it the steady state? Is it the big bang? Is it some other combination thereof? We don't know. And yet we hear all these things as truth, and they're not truth. Each generation redoes science again and again. Metaphysics is the ultimate faith that everybody has. And when the postmodernist says to you, there are no metaphysics because there's no truth, that is a metaphysic. It is self-contradictory. He's declaring to you his ultimate view of reality. We cannot escape from this any more than we can escape from being in this world. We are part of it. We have to live with faith. Everyone does. Now, the book that I asked all of you not to purchase but to take, free gift, okay? Free is good, I was told, right? 
Okay, this is free. I'm not even getting a penny on this. This, I'm, this is my love gift to you, all right? Take a look if you have it handy, and if you don't, we're going to pass some more out right now, at page 42, okay? This is a way of looking at one example of a worldview that is around us at every moment. And what we have here on this page, I'll start reading it here, a comparison of Christianity and secular materialism. Page 42, okay? 42, it's on the left side right in front of chapter 2, and guess what? It comes right before page 43. You wouldn't have known that unless I told you, I'm sure. Okay, a comparison of Christianity and secular materialism. Secular materialism is the belief that we are bombarded with constantly. It seems like it's the position you need to hold if you're really intelligent. It's only us uneducated Christian types that pretend that Christianity is true. That's the way the world portrays it. But notice what we have here in the left-hand column. We have the question of what we call the view of, the view of ultimate reality. You could say meta-narrative, metaphysics, the ultimate worldview. What is it we hold? Secondly, the source of truth. How do we know that this is true? Then the origins question. Where did we come from? Where did everything come from? Why is there suffering in the world? Where does death and evil come from? We all know it's true. We all suffer. We all have pain. And we face the end of all of life. And the question then is, ultimately, how do we make the world better? What is it that redeems us from this death and evil? What improves the human condition? Another question is ethics. Well, in light of all this, how should we live? Is there a right? Is there a wrong? Is there a way to do something? And then finally, where are we going? The ultimate destiny of man and the universe. Those questions are at the core of anyone who thinks at all about his life. And even when you don't want to think about it, you are answering those questions because everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a faith that attempts to answer these questions. Even if they're not sure, they're living with an assumption about how they ought to live, of what's right and wrong and what happens when they die. Everybody, nobody can escape this. This is the human predicament. As a Christian, we build our worldview. We say that who is the ultimate reality? God. He's eternal and personal. He has revealed himself to us. What is the source of truth? We would not know the ultimate realities unless God broke into our world. Now, some of you have studied philosophy, Immanuel Kant. He's famous for telling us that this realm above history, this bottom line we can talk about, science and history, but up here we can know nothing. It's sometimes been called the upper story and the lower story knowledge. We can't know the upper story. Kant says we can't. It's called the Kantian bifurcation of reality. We can't get up there. But guess what? If God is eternal and he's personal, he might have come downstairs. And he said, I want to know you. I want to talk to you. I might have put in a phone line to you. Maybe I gave you a conscience. Maybe I put my imago Dei, my image in your being, and you can, in fact, know me. That's part of our worldview. It doesn't, Kant didn't destroy Christianity. He just said man cannot do it on his own. Well, we've always taught that as Christians. We can't do it on our own. This is a God thing. It is from God down that we have this reality. We also ask the question, why is there death and evil? Because man has rebelled against God. We stand as covenant breakers from the very beginning of humanity. We said to God, no, we're not doing it your way. And the consequences are serious. Death and suffering are our reality, and they are universal. And so what is it that improves our human condition? What is the highest good? It's the grace of God in Christ. This is what takes away our sin, that takes away our curse, that takes away death, that gives us ultimately the hope that we long for. And then what is our ethics? It must be what God has revealed. God has guided us. And our ultimate destiny is the resurrection of life or the ultimate perfect justice of a God whose nature and law does not change. Okay, now what is, what's the big deal about a materialist? He has to answer the same questions. And here's what a materialist says. The only ultimate reality is matter 
energy that's eternal and impersonal. Okay, we're talking about the prominent worldview that surrounds us in the West. Okay, yeah, just go down to the third column now, okay? Still on the same page. So the ultimate reality is matter, energy, eternal and impersonal. This world is just made up of electrons and subatomic particles. That's all there is. Now, we stop for a moment and say, okay, we'll take that philosophy. Well, if that's really true, I just really don't like this guy right here. You know, he's got this silly soul patch right here, and it bothers me. And so I'm going to get rid of some electrons right now. I'm just going to blow his head off. He's just electrons, and I don't have to look at it. I'm sorry, I'm using you as a scapegoat. He'll forgive me because he's a Christian. Thank God for that. Okay. I Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> that, but that means he has a lot of self-restraint. That's good. <laughs> I was not a mortal blow. That was only an insult. Okay. The bottom line is, I just made an ethical claim based upon someone's belief. Prove me wrong. How do you know that anyone has any dignity? He's just, don't I split atoms in the test tube or in my laboratory? Don't I take chemicals? Don't I, if I want, smash an eggshell and feel nothing about it or a piece of gravel? It's all just matter. What gives this little bit of matter an extra advantage over something else that I want to manipulate because I have the power to do so? Wait a second. There's a problem with materialism because nobody can live with that kind of a world. It's utter chaos. Okay. What else? The source of truth. Well, autonomous reason and experience. I can figure everything out by just experiencing it and using my knowledge and my equipment. Okay, let's, get, let's ask a, a few things. Has anyone ever seen the number one? Okay, well, sure, this is, right, this is the number one. That's not the number one. That is just a symbol. But all of you know what the number one is, but we can't see it. You can't measure it. You can't manipulate it. We all know it. It's not, How about... Let's get more personal. How about love? Okay, you couples over there, they're kind of cozy tonight because you like sitting next to each other. Look at this arm right around this lovely later. Okay, okay. I asked him to do that. Oh, no, he, he does that all the time, right? That arm's around this lovely lady right here, and it's, it's just totally meaningless. It doesn't mean anything because it's just electrons, and it's not really even chemistry. Don't, don't get that word in there. We're misusing the word. It's just an arm that's there because why? We can't measure love. It, we don't know that love is anything. It's a, love is a, a myth. It is not material. It's not measurable. And every abstract idea you can imagine is beyond the ability of empiricism to measure, test, repeat, and you re- reduce everything to molecular processes. How about this honor, dignity, value, respect? They have no scientific value. There is no way to measure them. So that means they really don't exist. They're myths. You got rid of God, that's fine. But guess what? In getting rid of God, you got rid of a lot more. Keep thinking through this here. What is the origin of all things? How about this? Chaos, time, chance, no inalienable rights or eternal significance. We create our own purpose. The materialist has to say there is no sense of being endowed with our creator with certain unalienable rights. There's no creator. Rights don't really even exist. In fact, in our world, we write books like Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Stop thinking about freedom. Stop thinking about dignity. They are myths. Everything is just stimulus and response, pain and pleasure. You are just so many molecules reacting to the world. Now, can you really live like that? Can you really say that time and chance and chaos explains everything? What will you do when you send your fine young university student off to study? You've got all these multi-thousands of dollars invested, and he said, you know, I'm a materialist, and I'm going to all my exams with chaos as the tool behind me, because it's what created everything else we know. I'm just going to Go in and just see what happens. Time and chance and chaos. You say, no, you've got to study. No, no, I don't. Chaos does it. All I've got to do is take my papers, throw them up in my room, look at them, and I'm just going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to be fine. Because chaos explains everything. 
ought to take care of me in my final exam, right? You say, no, you need to get order in your life. You've got to pick up your papers. You need a tutor. I'm not spending all that money on you. You're wasting. It's going down the rat hole. What are you doing to us? Wait a second. I, I thought materialism is really intelligent here. You've got a problem. And you keep going about this. How about death and evil? They're just mindless, natural forces, random and purposeless suffering. If suffering has no purpose, then why does it matter if we inflict it, if it doesn't have any meaning, because it's all meaningless anyway? Why not make a few more people suffer if it's all about your personal values? Well, you keep going down the list. So what is the improvement of the human condition? The highest good is man's solution of self-actualization, education, the social service, the here and now, not the there and then. That's what all we can live for is right now. And that sounds like in one sense, well, at least it's something to live for, but why bother? After you do all this good stuff for people, they're just a pile of molecules, and they're going to mess it up anyway. So let them just do what happens and just care for yourself. Does that make more sense if you're going to be consistent with your worldview? Man's will, ethics, establishes standards for life. There are no absolutes. All is relative. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Postmodernity expresses itself in the phrase of my individualism. We call it expressive individualism. I want to tell you who I am. I'm going to do what I want. Wouldn't you like to be next to a neighbor who says, I don't care about anybody but me? You say, wait a second, I live next to that guy. I'm selling my house to get away from him. The person that says, all I care about is my narcissistic interest is someone that destroys society. And yet, that is ultimately what materialism says. The self creates the standards that are right and wrong for himself. Well, let me tell you, I would not want my 16-year-old daughter living next to a person that was an absolutely consistent materialist. Said, if I happen to rape her when you're not around, it's okay because she's just matter. I make my own laws. There are no ultimate rights or wrongs. If I can get away with it, it's okay because I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. We spoke about this last night. If Hitler had been a little stronger, it would have been right to kill Jews. Was it just because he wasn't powerful enough? There's no crime against humanity. And so what ultimate destiny is, imagine this. If Christianity says there's hope, this is what materialism is forced to say. There's extinction and oblivion of humanity and the repetition of the endless cycle of the explosion and contraction of the universe or the eternal freezing of all matter and energy and the final state of thermodynamic equilibrium. That's just simple English. What does it mean? Your life has no purpose or point. It all is going to end either in a whimper or a bang, and it doesn't matter. Well, then life really ought to be boring at the end of the day. Why waste your time? That's why the existentialists made the conclusion, life is nausea, life is absurd, life is despair. Why not consider suicide as the only real option because all you're doing is ending the inevitable sooner? Now, as you look at the two worldviews, I don't think the materialists can prove his position, but I've just asked some questions about where it might take you if you really believe it. Do you know any materialist that's consistent with the implications that I've just drawn out of his system? Thank God there aren't too many. What do they do? They kind of say, oh, I kind of like that Christian thing here, but I won't call it Christian. I'll just say ethics are hardwired. I was talking to an interesting fellow. He had a master's in philosophy. So we were talking about it, and I said, well, you're talking about ethics. Where are ethics? I just think it's hardwired into human beings. I said, well, that's fine, but how do you know that? Well, I don't I don't know. He said, well, you claimed it. How do you know it's there? Is that a presupposition? Where do you get that from? It can't be proven by nature. There's no basis for it in nature. But it sure sounds like something you might say comes from Christianity. And so I'm not going to let you have that right now. You've got to do better. You need my God to have that. Okay. Now, what am I trying to get at? We are surrounded with worldviews. Our worldview is considered ludicrous, inane. It is sub-intellectual. But I've just taken the most intellectual system we know, and I've asked honest questions. And they can try to fight against them, but they have no ground to resist any one of the inferences I've just drawn. 
Not one. I can say, I just don't like it. I'll change the subject. I disagree with it. But intellectually, they cannot stop one of those. They have no basis for it unless they come and say, well, I kind of like what Christians do here, and I'm going to borrow from our founding professor at Westminster called that borrowing capital. They borrow capital from the Christian system and bring it over. So what I want to do then, I could go through every system of thought and show you how our worldview engages it with these ideas. I've done the most important one. Let's take a more tricky one. How about the homosexual agenda? And I want you to know that homosexuals have complete freedom to be who they are. I'm not taking away any civil rights. I'm asking a philosophical question. Okay? Their ideology, what do they say? There's two different types. There are those that argue that there is no God and no revelation and we just live in nature. So this would be the secular homosexual philosophy. And they would in their system then just say that nature has made us the way that we are. And that is the system that basically says there is no creation. Creation doesn't exist because there's no God. This is just an evolutionary process. Okay? I'm not going to talk to them as, an, as a homosexual at this point and their ideology. Why? Because if they want to take this view, I think it's totally legitimate. There's no right or wrong. If you deny there's a God, you can do what you want. There's, who cares? I want to talk about the Christian who claims to be that homosexuality is a legitimate ideology. Here's what you're working with. First of all, you have to ask the question, does God have a nature and a will? Has that will been, in fact, revealed? And then is that nature revealed, for example, in the very origin of history? Did God at the beginning make man male and female? Or did he make us male and male and female and female? The revelation of Scripture argues that heterosexuality is his creation ordinance. Now, that's an ethical mouthful, but what it means is that what God did at the beginning is his ideal. Does the gospel recognize our sin? Absolutely. In the fall, what often happens is that a person who's seeking to say homosexuality is as just a valuable lifestyle as another is that he's saying that homosexuality does not come from the fall. It is exempt from this. It is good. You've changed the fall, and you said this is no longer a sin. Uh, it is not a sin. Now, I want to say, if God, in his word, and in his creation, says that this is not correct, we need to say, God, you are true. This, the fall describes us as adulterers, as pornographers, as child abusers or as homosexuals. If it's a sinful act in the fall, we need to be honest with it. Now, the next thing that we need to see, and this is where many who discuss these things from a Christian view fail, and that is they say there's no redemption. This is an unpardonable sin. I want to say that's not at all true. The cross addresses every sin, and no sin is greater than another before a holy God at the end of the day. Every sin, no matter how large or how small, makes us imperfect before a holy God and condemns us. If we deal with this in a Christian view, we say that Christ has died for every sin of every sinner who is elect. And if homosexuality is there, he died for that sin. If adultery is there, for the Christian, he died for that sin. And therefore, we must not diminish the fall and make some sin exempt. But by doing that, we also expand the greatness of the redemption because there's nothing that Christ's cross does not reach to. And that is why I can talk about these things and I say to anybody, call me a homophobe. I am not. I've just told you that my sin as a heterosexual is as wicked as anybody else's sin. I'm not better or worse. I am a sinner that needs a Savior like anybody else. And guess what? I have a hope that every sin will one day be overcome because of the resurrection. My sin 
your sin, anyone's who knows Christ. And that means we can deal honestly with our struggle because we see it in what Christ has already accomplished. You sang the song, we are glorified. We can look at ourselves in light of the hope and say, struggler that I am, there is hope for me. I remember Steve Brown, a wonderful Bible teacher who said, any dead fish can swim downstream. It takes a live fish to swim. You're struggling. Guess what? Praise God, you're alive. Just because you're failing sometimes doesn't mean there's no hope. There's hope. The struggle. I have friends who struggle with alcoholism, who struggle with drugs, that struggle with adultery. And there are people who struggle with homosexuality. They're all measurable by God's holiness, and they are sin. But the redemption of Christ reaches them all, and there is hope. That is the balance we must maintain. And you see, I'm dealing with this with the Bible, of course, but I want to show you how our worldviews are engaged in each of the questions. I'm trying to give you a tool to ask the question, how does this deal with what I believe about reality? Now, as we go on from this point, if you turn to the notes for tonight, I wanted to repeat last night and hammer home a couple more things. But we as Christians, then, are going to engage the world in some way because our worldview and our gospel calls us to make a difference. We read last night, we can say it again, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and following, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt is by its nature a preservative. Light by its nature dispels darkness. It automatically is confrontational. Salt is going after bacteria. It just does it. Can't help it. Light automatically dispels darkness. It just does it. It's its nature. Christianity, by being Christian, automatically engages the world around it. Not by trying to be hostile or angry. It just says, I'm here, and I make a difference by being here. I'm alive. Christ is in me. And that begins to influence the world around me. It's inevitable and inescapable. And so I've given you several examples that we could give great historical lectures on that would take several weeks. We don't have time. But Christians entered into the ending of slavery. They've addressed the issue of the sex trade. Child labor laws were changed in America by Christians that said we shouldn't be abusing children. Think about uh, Corey Ten Boom and the Holocaust, rescuing of people, Schindler's List, other people who fought in World War II saying this is a heinous crime. I'm going to give my life to stop it. We can think of racism, Martin Luther King and Sam Logan, we heard who marched. The book that I wrote is after all the fact, but we are trying to say racism is wrong as a Christian. We need to engage it. Drug abuse and alcoholism, you know what programs work? Those that bring people face-to-face with the gospel. The other programs create a serial need for therapy. The gospel is a powerful tool that says, I have a new power in my life that's let me say, as much as I want to drink, I won't. As much as I want to get high, I'm not. And that is the power of the gospel at work in us. And that's a Christian's ministry to the needy. And we think about genocide. I, I think of uh, Rick Warren's work, the great uh, ministry where he's gone to the war-torn genocidal countries of Africa as an evangelical and said, we should care about this. Let's do something. And he's trying to bring tribes to a healing place with the gospel in the middle of their war-torn world. What about the unborn and the unwanted, the lost and the least and the last? These have all been addressed by people of all the different Christian faiths Say we want to do something. So you're asking me the question this weekend, what about the Christian being involved in the public square? You want to hear what I'm going to try to tell you? If you really know your Christian worldview and you are a Christian and you're living in a fallen world, you have no choice but being involved in the public square because you're part of the public and you're a Christian. This is not a choice. It's just what Christians do. We engage the world as salt and light, and we begin to make a difference. It may be in different spheres. You'll see in my notes, I give you the point, there are different seasons in life. There are different opportunities in life. For some of you, your Christian engagement is going to be with your toddler at home. Well, let me tell you, that may be the most important ministry you'll ever have. 
as you raise a child to understand the power of the gospel and the hope of following his word. It may be as a teacher in a school where you have many people who are listening. It may be that you are going to become an activist in an organization where you actually go on to speak, write, serve, sacrifice, raise funds to engage a need. For some who are very infirm and old, you can't do anything. You say, I can't even leave my house very much. I barely got here tonight. Or I'm listening on some radio later on. I'm just housebound. Well, you know what? In the kingdom of God, every one of these public engagements are supernatural engagements. And prayer is how the kingdom of God moves forward. A simple image. I think prayer is like the oil in your engine. It keeps things moving It lubricates things. How long will your brand new car work if you never change the oil? This brand new $100,000 Porsche, you drive it up and you speed around. A year later, you've never paid attention to any mechanical issues. Two years later, three years later, by then it's going to be certainly starting to die, especially if you're driving 180 miles an hour. It's going to go. It's going to be useless. Prayer is the oil that keeps the kingdom of God moving. And there are people who specialize saying, Holy Spirit, work, bless these people, engage them. And it is a public square ministry from behind the scenes. At Valley Forge, near my house where I live, the one thing that just didn't show up when they needed it was food. You thought, wait a second, soldiers are those that have to have ammunition. Well, guess what? Napoleon was right. An army marches on its stomach. There's no food, they can't fight. The farmer that was tilling the ground and sacrificing his food was making the army able to fight. Those that serve behind the scenes make a huge difference. And so in those ministries where someone who says, I don't know how to say anything to anybody, but I'll stuff some envelopes. I'll take out the trash. I will write the bills. Those people are having a huge impact for the kingdom. You as a Christian are the light and the salt of the earth. You inevitably touch the public square. You have a worldview that cannot help but be different than what's around you. The question is, are you willing to use the unique God-given gifts at this stage of your life to make a difference? Whatever those might be, you can make a difference. So here's the theology. This is kind of like the Christian philosophy behind it. Let me give you two powerful but simple truths that I believe are inseparably connected that you must master as you think. One has been called the cultural mandate. Theologians like to come up with phrases to describe ideas. You look in the Bible, you won't find this phrase. But what it teaches, you'll find in the Bible. The second one you've heard before is called the Great Commission. We understand that to be Jesus' command as the risen Christ to his apostles to go into the world to make disciples of all the nations through the sacramental work and through the teaching that we have. And then he promises, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, what is this cultural mandate? We know what the Great Commission is. Well, you find this in Genesis chapter 1. You know the words already. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue everything. Bring it under the authority of the Lord. When those words are given at the beginning of the Bible, we are being told that Adam and those that stand under his headship in terms of creation are called to engage the world with the image of the Creator as it is seen in his vice regent, in his creatures. Let's take a look at that verse if you have your Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, you read in verses 27 and following, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then it mentions then, the horticultural implications of the crops that are to be enjoyed. What we are seeing here is that the creation that God has given has been given a ruler. It is mankind. And he's to govern everything. 
He's to be in charge of it all. He's to rule over it. Okay? That means, in my opinion, there is no sphere of life that's in this world that is not legitimately an interest for someone who worships God. I know one of the temptations we have, if you're a real follower of God, well, you ought to become a pastor like John Yenchko, or you ought to become a missionary like someone else that you know. That may be true. But maybe some of you ought to be mathematicians and engineers and nurses and doctors and lawyers and business people that love the Lord and subdue that area for the kingship of Christ. That is part of what we do. There is no sacred, secular distinction in the Reformed Christian view of the creation or cultural mandate. Abraham Kuyper long ago said, every square inch of earth is something that Jesus sees and says, that's mine too. It all belongs to him. Everything. Everything we do, everything we touch, ultimately belongs to Christ. That sphere frees us up then to be engaged in this world. How did Jesus say, you are in the world. You're just not of the world. You have a different source of truth, a different source of ethics, a different sense of what is the hope and the help of the world. But you are in the world. You engage it fully. Christ touches everything, and in Him you are and we are. The Great Commission of Jesus, I believe, is a restatement and an intensification of the cultural mandate. Look at the words that Jesus had. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and following. Hopefully you can actually quote these verses. But if you can't, we should certainly at least have them marked in our Bibles to reflect on them. In Matthew chapter 28, we start at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is saying that there is no authority in earth or in heaven that is higher than his. Do you realize that means that President Barack Obama, whether he wants to admit it or not, I don't know if he does. He's under King Jesus. That means that the prime minister in Beijing, China, whether he wants to believe it or not, he's under the authority of King Jesus. That means that the highest angel in heaven is under the authority of King Jesus. And that means that you as a Christian too, he's over, over everyone and we're all under his authority. All authority has been given to the risen Christ. Is there anyone else you know who has conquered the grave, who has the power of resurrection life? The greatest enemy of everything that we face is death and destruction and decay. He's conquered it. And that is his power. This authority has been granted to him as the risen Christ. And he says, therefore, that therefore, it goes back to this, based upon my authority, now get out into the world. I have given you the commandment. You need no other than mine. You're saying, could it be me, Lord? It is you. It is me too. We all have a sphere to get into the world. We go because the authority of Christ has sent us. We go. Notice what else it says. As we go, we are to make disciples. That word literally means to get people enrolled in the school of Christ to become his students. The greatest educator in the history of the world is King Jesus. He is the one who says, I want you to teach people. Use all the means of grace, baptism, but teach. Get the church involved. And notice the sweep that he says here. Go and make disciples in every nation. Baptize them in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what do you teach them? Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, everything you've heard from Christ, what is that? Well, you can say, well, that's what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? That's true. But is that all? Who is Jesus? He is the one eternal, unchangeable God who has become man. He's the second person to try in God. Every command of Scripture is the teaching of Christ. Jesus is regularly identified in the New Testament with the I am that I am. Remember in John chapter 8, verse 58? Before Abraham was, I am. He is saying, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And they were ready to pick up stones and destroy him because he had blasphemed. He is the eternal God. That means his commandment 
is also the cultural mandate. He commanded that. He is the God of the Bible who said, rule over this earth. We rule over this earth when we exercise our rightful role in creation and when we exercise our rightful role in evangelization and discipleship. There is a seamless connection between all of them. That means that the public square not only is inevitably engaged by a Christian who has a worldview and is being who he is, but he is hearing the command of Christ to rule and evangelize and engage. I would like to suggest to you then that if you are a Christian, the question should not be, should I be involved in the public square? The question is, what are you doing with your involvement? Because you already are. What are you doing to make a difference with the fact you're in this world but not of it? Well, some of the things we need to think about are what are the principles by which we operate? Well, we know the Ten Commandments are something that we ought to think about. We can't go through them tonight. Sometimes they've been summarized by our Lord into the two greatest commandments, to love God with all our heart, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We discover that God's law and the law of Christ are the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9. Today when we were talking about religious liberty, we made the observation that it is fascinating to see that the golden rule was used by William Penn to create religious liberty in his city of Philadelphia. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The new commandment is to love as I have loved you. We have all these ideas. What if we took those ideas and distilled them down and said, I am today going to take my faith in Christ and in my creation exercise do something that shows I love God and I love my neighbor. What is that that you would do? Do you need to have someone tell you what to do? You don't need any other commandment than Christ who said, go do it. All authority has been given to you, to you through him. I have it, now therefore go and do it. So what might be an issue? Well, I've heard about some of the things that this church is already doing, about your ability to bring food baskets, your idea of your clothing closet, your housing people who came to do tree repair. Well, where do you find those in the Bible? Well, you can find some of them in the Bible, but tree repair is harder to find. But loving your neighbor when he has a problem? Did you realize that when you do that, you have begun to overcome the biggest objection that you have to make a difference in this world? That is, why should I listen to you? You're crazy. You believe in God. You're crazy. You believe in creation. You're crazy. You believe in the resurrection of the dead. Why should I listen to you? When you begin to exercise your belief that I love God and I love my neighbor, and my loving my neighbor shows that I love God, that person is going to ask you, I guarantee you, why did you do that? Why? And you know what the answer is? Because I follow Jesus. And that will open a door. I guarantee you it is the point of contact that is possible and powerful when you exercise the gift of love because it does not flow from any other worldview in the way that it does from the gospel of Christ. We love God, we love our neighbor, we engage the world. I can't tell you what to do, but uh, I can think of several examples through the years of uh, what, what I have seen as people have just simply stepped out and said, I want to help someone in the name of Christ. My favorite example, I have a pastoral friend, a Westminster graduate from our Florida program, which didn't last very long. We got about seven graduates out and we closed it down. That was before my time. But here, here's this fellow. He said he feels called to, get, to do ministry on a college campus. Right? College campus puts up a sign. No one is allowed on campus unless invited in. Hint, hint, hint. If you're an evangelistic type person, go away. He can't even get on the campus. And this is in Florida. That's kind of usually a faith-friendly area. Can't even get on. So he thought about it for a while and he said, what am I willing to do so that I can engage students who need to hear Christ so that they would invite me on campus? And he came up with an idea by thinking this. He thought like a good business businessman. What does every college student really need? Pizza. Pizza's a good one. <laughs> okay. But he usually has money in his pocket to buy that. How about this? He said, every college student needs to have his bathroom cleaned. Is that true? Do you know any college student that wants to clean their bathroom? (laughs) 
<laughs> no. You at home don't even want to clean your bathroom. You kind of get it done sooner or later, one way or another, by necessity. So he, he literally said, I'm called to this campus. I can't get in. And so he went and he put up a sign that said, if you'd like your bathroom cleaned for free, call this number and had the tear-off slips. How about that? He got calls. And so he started going in and he started cleaning bathrooms. He had his own little tray of stuff. He'd go in and clean them up. And after doing this for a few weeks, sure enough, the five or six people, I don't know how many did, one of the guys said, John, why do you do this? He said, do you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. Are you absolutely sure you want to know why I'm doing this? I want to know why you're doing this. I said, okay, I'll tell you. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I wanted to show his love in a way so that I could talk about Christ. God kind of backed up a little bit. And after he scratched his head, he went to his drawer and he opened it up. He pulled out a book. He said, you know, a year or so ago, someone in my family gave me this book and said, you need to read it and take it. I've tried to read it. I don't understand anything about it. Or what you're talking about have anything to do with this? He said, yeah. He said, well, how, am I, how in the world am I supposed to understand this? Can anybody teach me? Said, I'd be willing to. He said, great, let's do it. And guess what? That man became a Christian. Now, I'm not calling on you to be the best bathroom cleaner on college campuses in the world, but I'm showing you that utterly trivial and maybe even disgusting things, when they're put into the hands of Christ, give you the ability to overcome the greatest objection that you're going to find in the world. I can't believe what you believe. I don't want to hear from you. In fact, it is my practice whenever I can, I try to do something to help a person. I can't always do it. I'm busy, but I, I say, wow, I could help that person. I do it. And, and sometimes they say, wow, that was really nice. Thanks for doing that. And I, and I like to say, well, Jesus loves you in the gospel. I hope you'll take time to think about him. Just to say it's a Christian expression. So in a small way, we can make a difference. Your season of life may be different than the next person. But I would like to ask you as a challenge, because we are in the public square, whether we know it or not, where is your sphere of engagement? It might begin with yourself. If you're not committed to living a Christian life, you're not going to have a big positive impact in any sphere if you're a Christian, but you're not living like one. To begin to impact the public square, you need to say, Lord, Please clean me up a little bit. I need to get things right. Perhaps tonight that's the call for you. Remember we talked about the wonders of the grace of the gospel? It's greater than your greatest sin. And you can find a new beginning tonight by coming and saying, Lord, I need you. Would you forgive me? Help me start again. It's a beautiful promise. Some of you can't get outside of your family. What a great place. That is a public square. Let Christ be seen in all the ways, the practical ways that you can do. And it will move eventually to culture, the state, or the nature, the natural world where the gospel can be seen. Now, as we have to wrap it up, what time should I be finished tonight, John? Okay. So I'm going to try to hasten through these final points in your notes tonight. When I come to the area of public policy... I've kind of laid the foundation of being, uh, let's say, an extroverted Christian. That was almost the title for this subject, right? How do I become someone that's not so ingrown that nobody sees me, but I'm kind of out there. I don't mind being known as a Christian. I want to engage the world. You want to move more publicly, more visibly into the public square. So... As you look at this point six here, it says public policy and the Christian. Let's think about a few things quickly. For the Christian, public policy is his faith and practice translated for the non-Christian world. Public policy is saying, I want you to see what I believe and what I think is right to do in this world, but I'm going to speak it in your language. The world doesn't speak Christian talk. It doesn't understand what we believe and what we talk. It doesn't make any sense. We have to 
be like missionaries, translating what we believe, what we believe are right, in a way that people can say, I see what you're talking about. That's hard work. But we need to ask the question, how do we translate it? The reason we need to do this is because this world that we're part of now in the Western civilization no longer is a Christianized culture. Do you know what culture ultimately is? It's the inward religion turned outward. Culture is what you worship on the inside, now seen in an expression to the world. Did you know that the word culture and cult are very closely related? We use the word cult in English in a pejorative way. It means someone who has some kind of radical belief with a a domineering leader that's trying to manipulate them for his own good into some false practice. But if you take the word outside of the English use to its earlier, let's say, Germanic use, cult, it means worship. Cult and culture, culture is your worship. It is your inward values now expressed in the public world. My love for Jesus doesn't look like anything sane in the public square of the world we live in today. See, what's wrong with this guy? This Jesus stuff, this Bible, his Ten Commandments. Forget that. I don't want anything to do with it. That's why we are no longer able to simply say, I want to tell you about Jesus. What we have to do is become missionaries. And how do missionaries do their work? We are in a missionary context because we are in a culture that abandoned the residual elements of the Christian heritage. There was, the last generation knew something about it. This generation knows nothing about Christianity. So what do missionaries look like? Look at your best missionaries that are out there. What do they do? Well, they're helping out in the schools. They're helping out with medical clinics. They're taking care of orphans and widows. And guess what? Christians have always done that. Why? Because those are points of contact where everybody knows when you do it, you are doing something that really matters because you are saying to them what they know in their heart. You're not just a bunch of electrons. You have dignity and value. And that becomes a point of contact. Okay? So what I'm asking you to think about now is that public policy, the values we would like to see in the world, have to be translated into a method that people can understand them. And this is going to take some hard work if we're going to do it well. And I commend this congregation for some practical ways that you're already doing it. When you, in fact, say we need to feed single moms and their families or we need to provide affordable clothing, that's a great... People understand that instantly. That's good. Why are you doing that, John? Why don't you come and preach at our Christmas program? What makes you tick? It opens doors. Keep doing it. This is, this is the idea. But each of us need to find a way. It is manifesting the gospel's love and wisdom. One of the great questions in apologetics, the defending of our faith, is what is our point of contact with the world? Now, here's a mouthful. I'll, I'll, I'll translate it for you if you're not a philosopher. There is no epistemological common ground with the unregenerate man. John, what does that mean? It means that people can't understand each other naturally. Okay. The, the way we think about truth, if we're not born again, you're not going to understand Christian talk. There's no point of knowing together. They know in a, We know by revelation. Remember that chart? We don't believe in revelation, so they don't understand this Bible stuff. But there is a point of contact because we live in the same world. We exist together. There's no epistemological point of contact, but there's an ontological point of contact. I exist and you exist, and we are side by side in this world, breathing the same air, drinking water together, eating food, trying to stay warm, trying to fight hurricanes, trying to address damage. All of those create contacts. Those are the point of contacts for a Christian to enter into the world and say there's a reason why we want to do this. Another area that we might think about it is what is called common grace. Now, we distinguish common grace from special grace. Special grace is our belief that God, through Christ, 
takes away our sin through his death and resurrection and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's saving grace. Common grace is the goodness that God puts into the world in every avenue. Every shower of rain that falls on Long Island is blessing the Christian and the non-Christian. The sun that shines grows the crops of every person. And those areas, again, are the areas we do have in common where we can engage. So as we wrap it up then, the question is, what is the area that you will choose to participate in? I'm saying you're participating positively or negatively in the common square or the public square right now. Negatively, if you're trying to talk Christian talk into a world that doesn't understand it. They don't understand a word that you're saying. Negatively, if you're living a life that even the world thinks is reprobate, and yet you're claiming to be a Christian. What is it that we need to do? Yourself, your family, your church, or an area where you know, like the sanctity of life, rescuing damaged families, helping children that need tutoring and counsel because they don't have parents. All of these things are examples of saying, I will be salt and light. The salt, I'm going to dispense a new purifying force in the toxic culture that surrounds us. Light, I'm going to show people things they've never seen before. The love of Christ put in action. You can do this. Ask God to guide you, and you will make a difference that could make a difference for eternity. Thank you. Thank Any you, questions? Peter. No, we're not going to go to worship now. Okay.